0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. As we continue our study, as we make our way through this series of seven visions that began in chapter 12, we've, we've come to the point where we are going to see the agents that our enemy is going to use against the church in the world. And as Cody read from John's letter to the church there in John chapter 2, and he warned us against the influence of the world and the temptations that are afforded to us by the world... This vision here in Revelation 13 gives us a look behind the scenes to understand that spiritual power that is at work in our world to tempt us, to draw us away from our hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you've made your way there, Revelation chapter 13, I'm going to read just the first ten verses, and then we'll pray together before we go any further. John writes, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. "...with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bears, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. and And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound." But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for forty-two months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this gathering of believers where we can hear your word read and taught and prayed over us, where we can sing your word and sing of the faith and sing of our Lord. And now we have an opportunity in our worship to study your word and to try to understand what you have revealed to us so that we can know you, so that we can know the truth, so that we can be prepared to live in this world for your glory and to forsake the worldliness that is all around us. Father, I do pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and receive your truth and I pray that you would have your way with us. Accomplish your purpose and drawing us into a closer relationship with you, which requires us to see those sins that separate us from you. To turn from those sins in our hearts and in our lives and to, to see Christ, our Lord, our Savior, the one who loves us and lived for us and died for us and who rose from the grave to conquer and to show that everything necessary to make our way of salvation sure has been accomplished. Father, we thank you for these things. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. How many of you are familiar with a creature called a marsh wiggle? Okay, I see some hands. So we have some C.S. Lewis readers here. A marsh wiggle is a creature that lives in Narnia. And one particular marsh wiggle named Puddleglum, he did a brave thing one time to rescue the kids from grave danger. In the book The Silver Chair, one of the Narnia stories by C.S. Lewis, the children, in this case it's Eustace and his friend from school who was being bullied, and he helped her to find his their way into Narnia. Well, they found their way into Narnia and they met an evil queen, and this. Queen was the queen of the realm of the underland. It was a dark place beneath the earth. And this queen was a wicked queen. And and there's this point in the story where she comes to the children, and they're in this place, underland, and, and puddle glum, the marshwiggle, is with them, and this queen you know makes her way into the room, and she puts some green powder on the fire that's in the room, and as a result of that green, magical, mystical powder, the, the, the whole room gets filled with smoke. And then the kids are breathing this stuff in, and they become confused. And that was the power of the, the powder. And in the midst of this, the, the evil queen, she begins to twist their understanding. The smoke has the ability to cause them to forget, and they can't remember things. And so she begins to change their understanding of reality. She begins to question their understanding of Narnia itself, of Aslan, and, and of reality above the darkness. She even tells them at one point, there is no Aslan, there is no world above. The only thing that is, is what is down here. And, and as the story goes, the children uh, succumb to the power of this powder, And then just before it's too late, puddle glum, the marsh wiggle, he does a brave thing. He recognizes what's going on, he walks over to the fire, and he begins to stamp on the fire, and he puts the fire out, and when he does that, it causes the room to clear up. All of the fog that's coming out of the fire becomes more clear, and the kids can see again, they can think again, they can remember again, and they realize that Narnia is true, that Aslan is king, and that there is a world beyond the darkness. Now y'all know that story, or some of you do, all of us know it now. And I've talked to you about Puddle Glum before, and I bring him up again today because we live in a time of great confusion in our world. We live in a time in our world where we need someone to stamp on the fire and to clear the air. We live in a world, we live in a culture where ideas are being spread that want us to believe that up is down. That, that right is wrong, that evil is good, and that underland, this weird concoction of new ideas that have taken over, that that's really all there is. And in our world, instead of an evil, wicked queen, there is, according to Scripture, there is a demonic beast behind all of the confusion. According to our passage this morning, there is a sinister demonic power at work in our world. The spirit of our age, the spirit of worldliness is hard at work. And John recognizes him as a blasphemous beast who has been given authority over every tribe and language and people and nation. But, John tells us, he has no power over those whose names have been written In the book of life. So, over the last few weeks, we have learned some things about what's going on in our world, specifically the spiritual realities taking place in our world. We learned about Satan, and we learned that through the the death, burial, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Satan no longer has a place in heaven. He he no longer sits in a place where he can accuse the brethren. He's actually been thrown down. Remember, we learned that five different times in chapter 12, that language shows up, that Satan has been thrown down. And he's thrown down as a result of what Christ has accomplished. He no longer has the ability to uh, accuse the brethren, but... The fact that he is on earth tells us that now he is pursuing. Now he is the, the force, the, the power behind the persecution of the church. And here in chapter 13, we learn that he has two agents. One of those agents is a beast that comes from the sea. The other agent is a beast that comes from land. We're not going to deal with that one today. We'll look at that one next week. But my purpose in preaching this morning is to help us understand this beast from the sea to help us to recognize how this beast attacks and to remind you of the protection that God has promised to his people. So those are our three points this morning. Let's look back at verse 1 and let's try to gain some understanding of this beast out of the sea. John tells us and you could actually go back to the last verse of chapter 12 where it says that Satan, the dragon, the, the great dragon that had been thrown down, he's standing on the sea and then John sees a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns, seven heads and 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. All right, real quick. Anyone here want to take a guess? At how many Godzilla movies there have been made? 50? No, a little, little high. 36. Now, they're not all made by American production companies. Most of them are made by Japanese production companies. But since 1954, there have been 36 Godzilla movies made, and and by the way, that means that there are 36 mythical monsters that Godzilla has to kill, and and I I can't go into all of that, but since 1998, four have been made in the States. Four Godzilla movies just in the last 24 years, and that tells us a little bit of something. It it tells us that the Japanese have a, a fascination with monsters that come out of the sea, but so do we. In this vision, John sees a monster coming out of the sea, this monstrous beast. And it's described as kind of this Frankenstein's monster with all of these different put-together parts from different predators that we all fear. There's part leopard, and it's part bear, and part lion, but it's 100% demonic. And this is a beast that we've already seen before in our study of the Revelation. This is a beast that we first learned about in chapter 11. I'm not going to go back to that. You can go back to that if you'd like. Just mark it down. But what we see here in chapter 13 is a far more clear description of this beast. The beast in chapter 11 was simply referred to. Here we see the role that this beast plays in the world. We also learned that this beast in this vision gains its power from the dragon This beast sits upon a throne. This beast has been given authority to rule. The beast is ferocious. The beast is fierce. But this is not a literal beast. This beast is symbolic. And I want to explain to you why that beast is symbolic. What does the beast symbolize? First of all, the beast represents the power of a demonized state. The power of a demonized state. The beast represents the kingdoms of the world the nations on the globe, and it shows that those nations, those worldly nations, are empowered by the spiritual forces of darkness. And we know that this is the symbolic connection, because this is, the revelation is not the first time we see an explanation of this beast. The first time we read about this beast is all the way back in Daniel chapter 7, as Daniel is prophesying about the future, And when he prophesies about this very beast, he says some things that help us to understand that what Daniel saw and what John is revealing to us are the same beast. Here's what Daniel writes, and this is in Daniel chapter 7. He says, after this I saw a fourth beast, and the after this is that he had seen three other beasts before that. In his vision. But this fourth beast, he says, is a terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong beast. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and it broke in pieces and it stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and therefore, behold, there came up another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like a man and a mouth speaking great things, great blasphemous things. That's Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Now, when Daniel saw this vision, he didn't understand it. And so he asked for an explanation, and he was told by the messenger from God that this beast represented, guess what, worldly kingdoms, that this beast is symbolic of something in the world, and the symbol that it's representing are the worldly nations, the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms that were set against God, the kingdoms that would persecute the people of God. And then the, the, the representative from God, the messenger from God told him, and the horns represent kings, leaders who rule over those kingdoms and those nations. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 27. And so when John sees this vision and he sees this beast, it's a callback to what Daniel saw. And Daniel's explanation makes sense for us today as we see this beast and what it represents. This beast that is empowered by Satan himself, that has authority over the nations of the world, every tribe and people and language and nation, this beast is a representative of the the kingdoms of the world set against God and his purposes. Behind the kingdoms of this world, the scriptures tell us, is a demonic power, The spirit of Antichrist, the terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong beast. This beast is worldly. This beast is radically narcissistic. It is self-obsessed, and it is bent, specifically, according to this vision, on reviling Christ. It utters blasphemies against God, but it's also bent on attacking the people of Christ. The church. This beast represents demonic and tyrannical state powers, national governments that work to persecute believers throughout the church age. But this is not the only beast we see in this chapter. In chapter 13, a little bit later, we're going to see another beast. And this beast is not quite as hideous in appearance as this first beast that comes from the sea. The beast from the earth performs signs and wonders. It speaks with controlled confidence. It, it instructs the world to worship the beast. And everyone who does worship the beast, this second beast from the earth, puts a mark upon their forehead. The second beast represents something as well. The second beast represents demonic false religions and worldly philosophies. And what John is helping us to understand is that as we live in this world and we are faced with temptations, in, in, in just in, in general worldliness, there's also a spiritual power behind these things. In chapter 17, by the way, we're going to learn of another agent that is empowered by the demonic this is the agent known as the, the whore of Babylon who rides upon the serpent, and she's just as demonic, and she represents worldly seduction. It's almost like the same guy who wrote John, uh, 1 John, Second John, and Third John is, is the guy who wrote the Revelation, and in fact, he is. And the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, John is helping helping us to understand that more, and he's showing us the spiritual power beneath it. That's what's going on here. And all three of these agents, worldly nations, worldly religions, and worldly seductions, all three of these things are explaining the temptations that we face in this world as we seek to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And by the way, all these things come together to form something of an unholy trinity. And we'll talk about the the counterfeit, the parody nature of these visions. This particular beast, I'm just kind of letting you know what's coming, right? So we can put this into context. This particular beast out of the sea um, is crowned with blasphemy. And and we know what blasphemy, that's that's profane language that is directed at God. These are words spoken by the beast in order to slander the creator, to insult his existence, his character, his actions. And and you you don't have to do much study in history to see nations and kingdoms who have set their minds and their energy into defiling and reviling Christianity. Even while John is writing this, the Roman, the, the Roman Empire is doing this very thing. Doing their very best to exterminate Christians all over the empire. But they're not the only nation to do that. Communist parties in China and in Russia have done their part to try to erase Christianity from their lands. And they're not the only nations doing that. This is representative of what the church is going to face throughout the world When these kingdoms, these nations, these lands become inflamed in their zeal to oppose Christ and his people. Today, many world leaders assume a completely secular worldview and they operate with little or no concern for God's truth. In purely secular nations, the state does not insist on literal worship, but citizens are tempted to look to the state as if it were a messiah. Our own national leaders will often pay lip service to people of faith, but this often amounts to little more than empty words offered in the hope of getting our votes. So what are we to make of this? What are we to make specifically of this mortal wound? I believe that God was the one who inflicted the wound, and I talked about this a little bit last week. I believe that God is the one who inflicted this wound on this beast, and it refers back to the cross and resurrection. This wound was dealt when Satan was cast down from heaven, and later in Revelation 13, 14, we will see that the beast's head was struck by a sword, and this is another reference to this, and and honestly, this is another reference to the Old Testament. I was sitting down with a brother and sister last night, and we were talking about this revelation study, and they were, we were just kind of going back and forth of things that we were learning. And one of the things that I was surprised to learn as I've been studying through this is just how much of the Old Testament we see being drawn into the, the revelation. And John is just drawing from these Old Testament stories, some that are so obscure you just wouldn't, you wouldn't recognize them generally. But, but then there's this one in Isaiah chapter 27 in verse 1, it says, In that day, looking forward, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. By the way, Leviathan is a creature that comes from the sea that in Job, God has to tame And there's another creature that God created that he has to tame, and that name is Behemoth. One comes from the sea, and one comes from the earth. And and Jewish tradition would have understood that this book and this vision is referring to those two creatures in some way. This This is not new language. This is old biblical language, and John is drawing it out to help us to see what is taking place. And oh, by the way, the one who wields the sword and who strikes the beast that is Jesus. But despite the wound that this beast has inflicted, he's still alive. And because of that, the world worships it. According to this vision, the earth marvels at the beast. The earth follows the beast and the earth even worships the beast saying this, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Now this phrase is an interesting phrase because it it looks similar to something we would see being said to our Lord, who is like the Lord and who can stand against Him. And that is not a mistake. One of the themes of the Revelation is this idea of Satan's attempt at parody or counterfeiting the theme of Satan's parody of the Godhead, his intent is to counterfeit what he sees in reality with God, and he presents that to the world. Let me present a couple of things just for you to consider, because maybe you've never heard about the, the, the idea of counterfeiting as being a theme within the Revelation. But here's, here's a few things for you to consider. Number one, the beast is the image of Satan who brought him forth just as Christ is the image of God who's been begotten by the Father. The beast has ten crowns, just as Christ has been crowned with many crowns. The beast has blasphemous names written on him, while Christ has a name written upon his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The dragon has, been given, uh, has given the beast power and authority and a throne, while Christ has obtained power and a throne and all authority in heaven and on earth from the Father. The beast has recovered from a mortal wound while Christ gave his life and was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father. The beast and the dragon receive worship from the world while God and the lamb receive the praise from the host of heaven, but all the redeemed also. The beast utters blasphemies about God while Christ utters praises of his Father. The beast makes war on the saints and Christ makes war against the beast. All of this is being presented to us in in symbolic fashion to help us see that what God has done in the world through himself and the son and the spirit and the bride, Satan is trying to do in counterfeit. Through his own power and through the beasts and even through his bride, so to speak, and those who dwell on the earth and worship him the theme of counterfeiting. Together, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, they form an unholy and demonic trinity, if you will, and this is the great part of the enemy's deception. Have you ever heard that before? Some of you have, some of you haven't. But Jesus has given us this vision for multiple reasons to inform us so that we can be on guard against the deception Like puddle glum stamping out the fire of confusion, Jesus gives this to us so that we can see clearly, so that we can remember the truth, so that this vision sets the record straight about what is going on in the world. Governments, false religions, the lust of the flesh, these things are working to keep humanity enslaved. Or to use Paul's language from 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul makes it clear in that passage that behind it all is the God of this world. So, this beast is symbolic. It's a symbolic reference to the evil nations of the world who seek to take the place of God in our hearts. This beast is counterfeit put forward by our spiritual enemy to tempt us to put our hope in the state, to put our hope in governments, to put our hope in men rather than in Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But now that we've seen something of what the beast symbolizes, let's talk about his tactics. Look at verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God against his name and his dwelling that is those who dwell in heaven now this this is not much of a stretch from where we were last week you remember what the what the enemies what the dragon's uh, weapon is against the people of God it's his mouth He opens his mouth in an attempt to sweep away the people of God with a flood, and that flood is a flood of lies. Basically, what this is is a callback to what we learned in chapter 12 about Satan attacking us through deception. Satan wants to cause us to reject the Word of God. Remember, this is an age-old tactic. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He wants to cause us to, to doubt the Word of God. He uses his mouth to try and wash us away uh, with, a, with a flood of deception, he wants to steal away our faith and our trust in God and in his word. And, and the beast is using the exact same playbook. The beast has a mouth uttering haughty or prideful and blasphemous, idolatrous words. This beast and the nations it represents, they want you to substitute an idol in the place of God. It wants you to ignore the scriptures Put your energy, your hope, and your trust, and ultimately your worship into the state. Now, in John's day, where it was obligatory upon everyone within the Roman Empire to take a pinch of incense and to throw it on the altar and to hail Caesar as Lord, you can see the connection that's being made there. Worshipping the state was very real at that time. Worshipping the head of state was assumed at that time. And John is taking that and he's helping us to understand that there's this demonic power behind it. And and maybe we're not being asked to bow down and worship our state. Maybe we're not being asked to throw a pinch of incense on the altar and to praise our heads of state, but it's not that much of a leap for fallen man to put our hope in worldly things rather than to put our hope in God. And that's the temptation. That general worldliness that we can get so swept up in, that we can believe that all that matters in life is what's right in front of us, what we can touch and what we can buy on Amazon and we can just get swept up in that simple, blatant worldliness. But it goes beyond just that. In our sinful state, in our fallenness, we long to put our hope and our trust in something greater than ourselves. We long to invest in something greater than ourselves. And if you do what our culture has done, you just try to remove God from the picture entirely, guess what, man will put their hope in all kinds of things because that's what our hearts long for, meaning, purpose, transcendence. The Bible says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And if we're not going to fill that with God, who is the only one who truly can satisfy that longing, then we will start filling it with everything else. And this world has plenty of things to try to fill that with that deep longing in our hearts to connect with something. When you remove God, we'll try to find something to put that in. And maybe it's sports. Some of you are just itching to get out of here because you want to go watch the game. And maybe that's not your idol, but it can be. And you need to be on guard against that. Maybe it's not sports. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's the fantasy world of gaming. That might not be an issue for half of this congregation, but it might be an issue for half of this congregation. Maybe it's not gaming. Maybe it's your work. Or maybe it is politics. Or maybe it's your national identity. Brother, sister, this is a sinister thing. If it it were easy for us to see, God wouldn't have revealed it to us in such amazing fashion. He's showing us something that we would not readily see in ourselves. Millions of people in our country have given their ultimate allegiance to a political party. Many. They volunteer their time, they devote themselves to the catechism of the platform, they venerate the leaders of the party, they march in protest against the opposing party, and they worship at the ballot box or maybe at the six o'clock news. Should Christians be good citizens? Yes, and amen. Absolutely. We should be model citizens, but not because we idolize the state. We should be model citizens because we want to be faithful to Christ, which means that we strive to be faithful to His Word. We seek to do good to everyone, especially to the household of faith, and we seek to uphold the truth no matter where we go, no matter what we do, no matter who we're talking with. This beast is at work in our world today. This beast is at work in our country today. Seeking to destroy the commitment of God's people to the the word of God and the truth of God and what it means to live out a Christian life in this world. It wants our allegiance. It wants our trust. And according to this, it wants our worship. And it has made war on the saints. It wants to marginalize our voice so that it can marginalize the voice of our Lord. And it has been given authority over every tribe and language and nation and people. But notice that this authority is limited. Notice that this beast has been given authority to exercise for 42 months. Now, think about this for a second. We've seen that that 42 months, or time, times, and half a time. We've seen that three and a half years. We've seen that about six times so far. And every time we see it, it's a representation of the age of the church. It's a representation of the time between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. It's referring to the time that we're living in right now. And this beast has been given a specific level of authority during this age, but that authority has been limited. The beast will be active until Christ returns, and at that point, his authority and his work will cease for good, and the beast looks unstoppable, but God has placed a limit upon its authority. If you think about this, would Satan want to limit the amount of time he seeks to deceive? No. It's not Satan that limits this beast. It's God who limits this beast. And John is showing us once again, which is a theme we've seen over and over again, that even though there is wickedness in this world, even though there are attacks against the people of God, the Lord has said, this I will allow and no further. God is the one who places limits on what the enemy is allowed to do. And this brings us to the last point. Because not only have we seen that God places limits upon what these enemies are allowed to do, but he also tells us from the very beginning of the book all the way until now, and we'll continue to see this theme, that as we, the people of God, face these temptations, God has placed his spiritual protection over us, and he will see us through these temptations. Let's look at, back at verse 8. He says, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, referring to the beast, and everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us a couple of things, that there's a purview that this beast has, there's an authority that this beast has been given, and there's even a group of people that this beast has access to, but there's another group of people that this beast does not have access to. This beast is incredibly successful in garnering the worship and devotion of the world of those whose names have not been written in God's book, but it has no power over those whose names have been written in the book of life of the Lamb. And notice that these names that were written down were written before the foundation of the world. This is the same language that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Ephesians to talk to us about the eternal plan of God for redemption, which is that God wrote the names of his people in a book before the foundation of the world. And brother, sister, if you are trusting in Christ today, then that's where your name is. And this passage is telling us that even though the the kingdoms of this world will tempt us, even though those things are active, even though those things are there God's protection rests over those who are His. This is a reference to all those who have put their trust in Christ for salvation. This is a reference to all those who are set apart for salvation from before the foundation of the world. This is a reference to those who have been born again to faith in Christ. And this beast is no match for the protection that God has placed upon us. And, And notice something else about this the names that are written in this book, this book of life, they were written before the foundation of the world, which means something. We didn't earn our way onto its pages. And nor did God use some divine vision to look into history to say, oh, that person's going to choose me, so I'm going to write their name down. No, no, no. This is saying that God set His saving love on us before He spoke existence into being. God set his saving and electing love upon us before the foundation of the world. Before we'd ever done anything, before we were ever anything in this world, in reality, God had written names in a book. His love for his people, his love for you, has been fixed in his divine mind from eternity past, and nothing will change that, especially not this beast. And John is writing that to us. He's telling us, brothers, sisters, whatever you face in this world, you can endure. You can have confidence. You can put your hope and your trust in the Lord because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And whatever work he has begun in you, he will bring to completion at the day of Christ. With each new vision, Jesus shows us new terrors that plague the church. He shows us these incredible images of demonic forces that are waging war against us. And, and, and if, you, if you look at these things and you think about them, it can make a chill run up your spine. But with each new vision, John also reminds us of God's unfailing protection for the church he reminds us that we are his not by our merits and not by our goodness but by his grace and by the faith that we have in Christ and with each new attack there is a a renewed song of God's love over his people so let the enemy come let the beast utter his blasphemies because God is for us and since God is for us we should fear no enemy our eternity is secure. Our names are written in the census book of eternity. Can't get more secure than that. So what do we do with this? Right? So what? This is the vision, what this beast represents symbolically, how this beast attacks in the world, and how God has protected us. What do we do with that today? Three things I want to offer as application points, ways we can go forward First is this, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Joel Beakey, who's written a, a wonderful commentary on the book of Revelation, I highly recommend it. He says this, he says, Revelation 13 confirms Paul's statement in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. A network of evil lurks behind this world. The world is in the grip of institutions and ideologies that transcend the individual and condition our lifestyle. We live in a consumer society that is rife with hidden persuaders, multinational companies, ideologies and isms that wage war against the church and our Lord. And we should look behind these things to see the beasts of Revelation, the mystery of iniquity, the power of Antichrist, and the devil's schemes against the church. And Revelation 13 tells us not to be swept along, not to be intimidated by this evil. Rather, we should be watchful and we should be prayerful. Pay attention to what is going on in the world. I made mention earlier about those who watch the news with the kind of devotion of a, of a worshiper. And I'm not saying that we as believers should not be aware of what's going on in our world. We should be. We should think deeply about the things we hear. We should think deeply about the things that are being voted on at the ballot box. And yes, part of being a good citizen, part of being a good servant of Christ is to do what we can to promote His truth and good in our world. And part of that is how we vote. We need to be watchful. We need to be mindful. When those people come around your neighborhood and they're handing out flyers because they want your vote, do you just kind of go inside and not answer the door? Or do you go outside and talk to them and say, what do you believe? What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? How do you, where do you fall on this thing? When you hear phrases being talked about on the news and, 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 school board meetings and things like that, things that are being taught to our, our country, to our nation. Do you pay attention to those things? Do you learn what that's all about? We do our best, or we, we try very hard as a church to teach those things and how they relate to Scripture or how they conflict with Scripture. I'm thinking of things I mentioned last week Like political theories and critical race theory and and every other theory that gets applied into our world and gender theory and all of those things. Do you know what you think about that? Do you understand what those words are? We need to know. We need to pay close attention to the ideas that are being shared in our world and we need to know what God's word says about them so that we can be faithful to Him when we open our mouths, when we vote at the ballot box. So be watchful, don't close your eyes be watchful, pay attention to what's going on, the wor- on in our world and pray that God would give you the wisdom to understand it and the ability to speak truth into it. So be watchful and pray. Second, and it's right here at the end of this passage, John tells us in verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. We need to heed the call to endure. And endurance is not an easy word, right? Endurance refers to the inner strength that allows us to withstand hard things. By the way, you're a Christian. Did you know that God has called you to do hard things? He made it very clear when he he called disciples to himself. As a group of people were enamored at his teaching, he says, look, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And oh, by the way, the path I'm going to lead you on is narrow and dangerous. He's called us to do hard things, and it's going to require endurance. Endurance refers to the ability to hold up under pressure and not give in to the temptations that we face. James tells us in chapter 1, we're, we're to test our faith, and the testing of our faith produces endurance, which means that the more that we hold on to Christ, the more that we refuse to give in to the world, the stronger we will grow. And so when those temptations are strong, when those ideas are flooding you, maybe you're a student and you're hearing this every time you go into a college campus. Or maybe you're in a working environment and this stuff is just being crammed down your throat through HR. Endure. Hold on to the faith. Don't abandon the truth. We endure for the sake of Christ. We endure for the sake of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We we endure in faith, trusting God in Christ alone, trusting in Christ alone, our Redeemer and our Savior. So heed the call to endurance and faith. And then lastly, some of us, all of us, we need to repent and trust in Jesus. This great beast looks frightening until you look up and you see Christ who towers over every kingdom, who towers over every worldly power, who towers over everything and will bring it into submission. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this of our Lord. He says, "...He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things." Even this demonic beast, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, because he has made peace by the blood of his cross." And you may be a believer today, and just in the, in the 40 minutes we've been talking about this, you've been confronted and convicted over some indulgence in the world that's taking you away from finding your hope in Christ. The call is to repent, to turn away from that sin, to seek the forgiveness of God, the cleansing that God promises to his people, and to renew your hope in, tri- in Christ alone. But there may be one here, maybe more than one here, who's who's just embraced the world. And your greatest love is not the Lord Jesus Christ and His truth. Your greatest love is this world. Your calling is to recognize the emptiness of where you've placed your hope. To understand that all of us, everyone in this room, we are sinners We are sinners in need of a Savior. And our sin is displayed in the fact that we do not put Christ first. Our sin is displayed in that we do not praise the glory of God and the holiness of God. And our sin is displayed when we transgress the law of God. And because we are sinners, we are desperately in need of a Savior. And the only Savior, the only Savior who will satisfy that need is the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came to us. We don't work our way to Him. He came down to us, and he lived for us a righteous life we could not live, and he died a sacrificial death that we needed him to die, and he was raised from the dead so that the Father could show that everything necessary for the redemption of my people has been accomplished. Put your hope and trust in Christ. Turn away from your love of this world. Put your hope and trust in Christ. We need to repent We need to repent of the ways that we put our hope in the world and men and stock markets and politicians. We need to repent of the ways that we've given in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We need to repent and trust in the one who gave his life to save us and the one who truly rules over the world we live in and the world that is to come. So let me pray for us and we'll respond in worship. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray this every week, Father, that these passages are difficult they are difficult for us to understand, and there may be other ideas. There, certainly, there are other things that have been taught about these passages, but these things are true. That behind the worldliness that we face on a daily basis is a spiritual dimension, and that spiritual dimension is seeking to tempt us, to draw us away from our hope in You and our hope and trust in Your Word. And those tactics are there and they are deceiving. They are to pull us away, to cause us to place our hope in something other than Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would protect us. I pray that you would make us discerning and wise. I pray that you would help us to put our hope and trust in Christ alone. I pray that we would be confident in the protection that you have promised to your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would receive the glory from the lives of your children. Help us to be a light in this world. Help us to be good citizens. Help us to do all that we can under your authority and according to your word to be what you've called us to be, salt and light in a world that is decaying and dark. But Lord, help us to be on guard. Protect us and use us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.